for a while now, and which is actually my, my normative preaching style, is going through a book together. So we're going to go through a book together. We're going to start a new sermon series, and we're calling our new sermon series For His Glory and For Our Benefit. For His Glory, For Our Benefit will be the, the title of the sermon series, and we're going to go through the book of 1 John together. So if you have your Bibles, make your way over there to 1 John, and we're going to start a new series there. And it's a short book, but a powerful book, a very straightforward and blunt book, um, but one of those books that I believe is going to be really helpful for us as we go forward. It's, it's tough, I'm going to be honest, picking a book that you're going to go over for the next several weeks, and, but God has helped me decide on this book. I believe First John is going to be very helpful to all of us. But again, before we get to the text, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you have little things in your life that bring you joy? Little things, things that are insignificant seemingly. Did you bring that out on purpose? He's dancing with the moose back there. Roger, that, that is, that's bringing me joy right now. <laughs> Do you have little things in your life that bring you joy? Things that are small but bring you a good amount of joy? Well, I'm going to give you a few of my lists, little things that bring me joy. And I don't know why they do. They're just, they're just things I delight in. Here's number one. It's little, but I like it. Salsa. <laughs> Anyone else like salsa? I don't know what it is about salsa. I love salsa. And uh, Travis and I, my brother and I, have been eating salsa since our teenage years. We'd have a huge big can of it. We'd go down with those tortilla chips and dive into that salsa. I love salsa. In fact, I love the sweet salsa, the pineapple or the mango or the peach. That stuff's really good. So salsa brings me a lot of joy. Here's another one that brings me joy, air conditioning on my face. <laughs> now, we've had some unseasonably warm weather lately. And so has anyone turned the air conditioning on in their car yet while driving? All right, Kevin. Okay, we got a few. Some looked at me with disgust, and the others are like, yep. Well, I love air conditioning on my face. In fact, I, I was driving around the other day, and I looked, I think I looked um, unusually happy in the car. Because, you know, sometimes you'll stop at a light, and people look at you, and vice versa, and I'm just smiling. Smiling real big, because the air conditioning's hitting me right in the face. It's a small thing, but it brings me a lot of joy. I love air conditioning. Here's another one, software updates. Anyone else like software updates? I know that's a weird thing to say, but, but every time my, my technology pops up with a software update, I get a little excited. Something new's coming. It's going to be fantastic. I don't know what's happening, but as soon as I hit this button, in all reality, it doesn't end up bringing you joy, does it? Because it takes 45 minutes and then nothing changes. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on with the software updates, but I do get a little excited when one pops up on my screen. Here's another one I get excited about. When a good 80s song comes on the radio. Anyone? Thank you, Janet. Yes, 80s songs when they come on the radio. It has to be a good one, though, not just any 80s song. But when that comes on the radio, I get a little excited, and uh, yes, I, I sing a little bit. Not so loud people can hear me because my voice isn't awesome. But uh, here's another thing that brings me joy that is small, but remembering something that I often forget. Anyone do that? You have, a, you, have, you have something you want to remember and you usually forget that and then one of those special days happen and you remember. And it's like, yes, I took out the garbage. Or I remembered my wallet today. Things that I usually forget, but I remembered. It's, it's one of those small things, but it brings me a lot of joy. Here's number six, beating a cold. I love when I can beat a cold. Like, I feel like cold coming on, right, Janet? And then you take the vitamin C. It might be placebo, but it might not be, too. Airborne. Airborne. I'll drink the airborne, and, and I chase the sore throat away, and I intimidate it with my muscles, and uh, I beat the cold. Now, sometimes it beats me, too, right, Janet? Sometimes it goes the other way. But I like when I beat the cold. Here's number seven. Being rude to Alexa. Um... <laughs> I have an, we have an Alexa in her house, and sometimes she doesn't listen. So on occasion, not all the time, you're not going to drive by and hear a domestic happening with me and Alexa, okay? But on occasion, I'll have to let Alexa know who's in charge here. Where, she, that's probably true. That's probably true. In fact, probably more than I know, which is kind of creepy. Um, but you ever raise your voice to Siri or Alexa? Let them know to get with the program? Otherwise, you're going to a Blackberry like I did. Here's number eight that brings me a little joy is driving around in the North Country, right? Anyone else just love driving around where we're at? Isn't that beautiful? I love driving around in the North Country, although I find it very distracting because I'm not looking at the road. I'm looking at the mountains and where the moose should be. Um, I just love driving around where we are. It's, it's beautiful. I'll take any chance I can to go on an errand and just drive because I love it. Here's number nine, and this one's a little sad because he's not here today, but Joel's I'm going to call it his special pastor strength, I mean, cider of prosperity. 
I came up with a term for it, Cheryl. He gives me this cider every day after I preach, and after I preach, my throat is dry. And then as soon as I started preaching, he came and gave me this little cup of cider. It's tremendous, and it gives me a lot of joy. So let him know that, and I came up with a term for it, his special pastor strengthening cider of prosperity. Thank you, Joel, wherever you are. We miss you today. And number 10 thing that brings me joy is starting a countdown to fall in mid-April. Does anyone else do it? Nobody. <laughs> Get some dirty looks on that one. I, I do. I, as soon as the warm weather comes up, I'm like, okay, how many days till fall? And I start a countdown and fall. Well, maybe there's some things in your life that bring you joy that are small things. We're going to talk about one that is seemingly small, but it can bring you quite a bit of joy if you understand it properly and you utilize it. And it is fellowship. Fellowship. We're going to talk about the joy of fellowship today. And we're going to get that right out of the text. We're going to dive into 1 John today. And we're going to look at four verses today. We're just going to crack the door open today and get to the eating of the food. But I know what you're thinking. It won't be short, will it? Because it's Pastor Todd. But I will do my best today because I know the food is competing with me and that's never good. But the joy of fellowship is, is the title of our lesson today. And we're going to look at the first four verses of 1 John. And here's my encouragement. Since we're going through 1 John together for the next several weeks, my encouragement, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework, okay? I'm going to ask that you read the five chapters of 1 John every single week. I don't believe it'll take you that long. I think it'll take you 10, 15 minutes. But my encouragement to you as your pastor is to read the whole book of 1 John every single week so you can get an idea of where we're going, where we're headed. You can see some of the themes pop out. So if you would get on board with that, that would be great. But let's read the Word of God together, the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. Listen to the Word of God and follow along. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Listen to the word of God. Why don't we bow in prayer today and give this lesson over to the Lord. Father, I'm so thankful for the word of God, and I'm so thankful for the privilege to teach it today. I pray that even as I teach, Father, I would be a student along with everybody here and would listen to you speaking to us today by your word, by your Holy Spirit. Open our minds and ears to the truth, and may we be impacted um, simply by what is being taught here today. And we ask that you glorify yourself in these days, in these hours, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, anytime you start a book, it's, it's good and customary to give a little bit of background about that book, a little bit of context about who the author is, who he's writing to. But in all honesty, First John is challenging because we don't know a lot about it. The writer himself does not give any background. He just dives right into the text. But we do know a little bit about the author. This is... The Apostle John. Some people call him John the Evangelist. Excuse me, not Paul. The Apostle John. And the Apostle John was obviously very close to Jesus Christ. He is a, his life and testimony is all over the scripture. But we do know some things about John. So we're going to give you a little bit of a bullet point about John's life. Things that you might know already, you might not know. But John and his brother James were actually the third and fourth disciples that Jesus called. Do you know the first two? Who were the first two that Jesus called? Peter and Andrew, another set of brothers. So two sets of brothers Jesus called and said, follow me. First it was Peter and Andrew, and then James and John, his brother, were the third and fourth disciples that Jesus ever called to follow him. Jesus termed these brothers the sons of thunder. Now when our twins were born, remember that? We, we called them the sons of thunder for a while because they were big, strapping boys. They still are. Um, but I often wondered, why did Jesus call them the sons of thunder? Well, I did a little digging, and I found a reason for it that I can't say is the reason, but it's interesting nonetheless. When Jesus was, uh, had set himself to head to Jerusalem and to be crucified, he was journeying on his way to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, they would pass by these Samaritan towns and, and try to get a little bit of respite, a little bit of lodging. Well, Jesus tried this in this one instance. He tried to come to the Samaritan town, and as you know, the Samaritans and Jews did not get along, did not like each other. But Jesus tried to get a little respite in one of these Samaritan towns as he's journeying to Jerusalem. And in Luke 9, 53 to 54, this is what it says. But the people did not receive him 
because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Wow. Harsh. Now that might be one reason they're called the sons of thunder. You don't mess with James and John, and you don't mess with Jesus Christ when James and John are around. Now, that's not something I'm going to do, okay, as your pastor. That's not something I'm going to ask for my church people. Like, like who didn't bring their food for the potluck? Ron and Ann, do you want me to ask fire to come down? I'm not going to do that. That would be bad, okay? But that's perhaps why James and John were called the sons of thunder. But Jesus actually had his own term for John. John was called the one whom Jesus loved. Isn't that tender? Isn't that affectionate? Whoever John was to Jesus, it was so profound, so special, that Jesus penned this term, the one whom I love. Now, of course, Jesus loves all of his people, all of his disciples. But John had a tender relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's very affectionate. James, excuse me, John was part of Jesus' inner circle. If you know he had an inner circle, three guys that often went special places with him, apart from even the twelve, and it was Peter, James, and John. And sometimes they would get to do special things that the other rest of the disciples were not included in. So Jesus had this inner circle of three guys he truly trusted, and John was one of those three. We believe, along with 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that he most likely wrote the Gospel of John in the book of Revelation. We believe it's the same guy writing all of those books. And we're going to notice somewhat of a similarity here as we go on and we talk about the beginning of 1st John. You'll see a parallel between the Gospel of John and 1st John. John was also one of three people who saw Jesus transfigured, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit as well. Jesus was transfigured on a mountain, and John, Peter, and James were all there witnessing that. So John had a very special relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's going to be really important for what he says here, really important. So we need to understand how close he was to Jesus, because what he's going to tell us today is so profound that he needs to be that close to Jesus Christ for that to make sense. But we don't know a lot of the context about who he's writing to. But one thing is made very, very clear. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's going to be abundantly clear as we go through the book of 1 John. And I don't know if you could see some of that up there. But the author, of course, is John the Apostle. We believe he's writing to Christians. That's going to be very clear. But we don't know exactly who or when. Some people have guessed that maybe it's, it's in Ephesus. I've heard perhaps this letter was sent around to house churches in Asia Minor. But the honesty is, they're guesses. We don't really know, so we can't really elaborate on who he's writing to, only that they're Christians, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, and what he's going to say is going to be very special for them. But what's interesting, if you go to the end of 1 John in chapter 5, you get a little bit of a, a teaser, a trailer for why John is writing this book. And I decided to show you that and give you a little spoiler alert for why John says he's writing this book. In 1 John 5.13, he says, I write these things to you, Christians who believe in the name of the Son of God. I told you it was abundantly clear he's writing to Christians. And here's the reason. So that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing these things to you today so that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you can have confidence, you can have assurance, and you can have hope. I believe that's why John is writing this letter, so that we can know, based on what he's going to tell us through this entire book, that we have eternal life. That's the goal. And keep that goal in your mind as we make this journey through. That's what he's writing for, so that we can have the confidence that when we pass from this life, we will be with the Lord forever. Amen? So remember that as we go on. But let's get right into the text, and let's dive into these first four verses. Now, John, when he begins, says that. He says, and we find out our subject is that. It sounds like a who's on first. You guys remember that, who's on first? That little skit they had, and the guy says, who's on first? And he says, yes. He goes, well, who's on first? He goes, exactly. Well, basically, the guy's name is who, and they go back and forth. Well, the subject for 1 John chapter 1 is that. That is the subject. What's the subject? That is the subject. And that's interesting, but here's the qualifier for that. That which is from the beginning. Now, when you're reading the Word of God, you have to understand that the Word of God often takes a different pace than we give it. Sometimes we will race through, we will, we will gloss over certain important details because we're trying to, to study too much text or we're trying to fit it into a certain time slot. But I would encourage you as your pastor to go slow. 
to pay attention, to pay attention to verses like this, that which is from the beginning, because that's a very important phrase. It's something that you could gloss over. But if you go carefully, you can actually get quite a bit of truth from that one phrase. Because John is basically saying, in the beginning, or from the beginning, something was truthful, something was real, something was happening in the beginning. And you see that in, of course, you see that in Genesis, you see that in 1 John, and we're going to see it in the book of, or the Gospel of John as well. In fact, let's go there right now in John chapter 1. And this is why you could usually tell this is written by the same person, because it has a very similar tone. No background, no intro, we get right into it. And he says something very similar. In John 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word. It was the Word. Okay, so we have that as our subject, and now we have the Word as our subject. And he elaborates and says, The Word was with God. In the beginning, the Word was there. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Isn't that important to know? It was there in the beginning. It was next to God, with God, and it was God. So that's his subject in John chapter 1. And if you keep reading, which we will hear in a little bit, I don't know if you can see that, but you can look at your own Bible as well. This is John the Gospel now. Don't get confused, okay? This is John the Gospel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we can tell it's not just talking about the Bible or scriptural text. It's talking about a person. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Have you noticed that? In the beginning, someone was there. So if someone is there in the beginning, what does that tell you? They are before the beginning. They are the creators of everything that we know because they were there before anything that you and I know was there. And of course we can tell he's talking about who? Jesus. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the light of men. Jesus is he who was in the beginning, he who created everything. And basically, John is saying this, and he's gonna, we're going to find this theme throughout 1 John. It all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. He wants us to know from the jump, from the get-go, that this is about the Lord Jesus Christ, that which was from the beginning. So that's his subject, Jesus Christ, the word of life. Jesus is our subject, that which was from the beginning. Now he's going to say something really powerful here which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment concerning the word of life. He calls him the word of life now. But it's still Jesus. John says, we've heard him who was from the beginning, him who was there before the world began, we heard him. Speak. We've seen him with our eyes. We've looked upon him. And maybe that phrase actually means to study him. Not just see him, but to study his life, to study his teaching. And we touched him with our hands. Now imagine how profound that would be for, for you to be able to have a first-hand experience with the one who was there in the beginning. That's exactly what John is saying. The one who was there in the beginning, the one who created everything, we saw, we heard, we studied, we touched him with our hands. Now, there's something in our culture called hearsay that maybe you guys have heard of before. Hearsay is basically hearing someone talk about something that happened, right? So you weren't there, but you heard, overheard someone talk about something that they experienced. The problem with hearsay is it's not admissible in court. You cannot bring hearsay into a court because it's not strong enough. You can't say to someone, I heard them talk about the event and that person wasn't even there, but they're saying something that actually happened and I heard them say that. That's not strong enough to bring into court. It's hearsay. So hearsay is not strong enough, is it? And you guys remember this because we used to play a little game when we were growing up called what? What was this game called? Telephone. Telephone. You guys remember this game? I play this with our children. It's quite hilarious because we have eight kids. And you remember the, the concept of telephone, right? Someone starts off with a phrase like, 
I love shoes. And they tell everyone, and it, it, it changes based on hearsay. They're telling the next person, the next person's telling the person down the road. By the end, the person does not hear, I love shoes. They hear, I own moose, or something like that. <laughs> and the phrase totally changes by the time it gets to the last person. Well, that's hearsay. That's exactly why hearsay is not strong enough to bring into court, because perhaps you misheard. Perhaps you misunderstood. Perhaps you didn't know the context. Perhaps you didn't have a proper perspective of what's going on. But there's also something that's in our culture called eyewitness. An eyewitness is so strong, it's one of the most strongest testimonies you can bring into a court. Because basically, an eyewitness said, I saw it happen. I was there when it happened. I saw it with my eyes. I heard it with my ears. I was there. I'm a firsthand eyewitness of what took place. Do you see the difference between hearsay and eyewitness? Hearsay, you could be wrong. Eyewitness, it is truth and fact because you were there and you studied it. And you saw it with your senses and touched it and felt it and heard it. And that is a very strong testimony to bring into a court setting. Well, that's exactly what John is saying. He's saying, I was there with this Jesus Christ. I saw him, I heard him, I studied him, and I touched him with my hands. That which was from the beginning was in the room with me together next to each other, and I was there. And that's, that's a powerful testimony that John is giving us to say it's not hearsay. I'm telling you what he actually said. I'm telling you what he actually did. I studied him. I asked him questions. I even touched him. And this is what I'm writing about. And I want you to know that I am an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And he's going to keep calling him different things, but they all mean the same thing. He calls him the life. And remember, he called him the word of life. Still talking about Jesus Christ. He says the life was made manifest. Now let's talk about that word for a little bit. Manifest. I don't know if that's a word you use or, or know about, but manifest is a really important word. I decided to look it up in the common dictionary just because I was curious, and these are the definitions I got. I'm not sure if you could see that or not. But manifest has two definitions. One is an adjective. It can mean clear or obvious to the eye or mind. Clear or obvious to the eye or mind. Manifest can also be a verb, meaning to display or show by one's acts or appearance to demonstrate. John says the life was made manifest. The life was made clear and obvious to me. Now, let me give you a little illustration. What is that a picture of? It's a smoke alarm. My children, when I showed them that picture, thought it was an upside-down robot vacuum. <laughs> the perspective of kids is awesome, and perhaps it was on fire. Um, but no, that's a smoke detector. A smoke detector is a good example of this idea of manifest. In fact, when Janine and I were living in our first apartment, our second apartment in Michigan, we had one of those really sensitive smoke alarms. You ever have one of those? And Janine would make toast, not even burn toast. And the thing was so loud, so piercing that I think the whole neighborhood could hear it. But one thing was made very clear that the smoke alarms are given to you so they can manifest, make clear or obvious that there's possible danger in your house. It's going to be loud. It's going to be piercing. It's going to get your attention so that you can know there's possible danger in your house. That is the point of a smoke alarm. And that's a good illustration for this idea of manifest, clear or obvious. Well, last week we talked about the gospel and the Easter message and the resurrection. And we touched on this a little bit. If you remember that scene when Jesus is dying on the cross and one of the centurions who was responsible for putting Jesus on the cross is viewing this entire thing. He's watching Jesus die. And he, he's watching some remarkable things take place right in front of his eyes. He's watching them put the phrase, this is the king of the Jews, above his head. He's watching Jesus forgive one of the thieves next to him hanging on the cross. He's watching Jesus not take the sponge of wine. He's watching Jesus yield up his own spirit on his own authority. And he comes to this conclusion after Jesus gives up his spirit. Truly, this was the Son of God. In a moment, the, Jesus had been manifested to the centurion guard, and he came to one conclusion. I am before the Son of God. It's clear, and it's made obvious. Based on what I've seen with my own eyes, this person who just died was the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? So Jesus was made manifest even to the centurion. But I want you to understand that if you are a Christian, if you have been saved, you have your own testimony of when that happened to you. 
And really that's the spirit behind our membership process is we're trying to figure out and understand that we all have a testimony. We all have an experience of when Jesus was made clear and obvious to us. And I want you to think about that time just for a moment here. When was Jesus made clear and obvious to you? Not only that he existed, but that he's the Savior. Because I know you have a time. If you've been saved, you remember that. You have that testimony that Jesus was made clear and obvious in your mind. In fact, I have that testimony. <laughs> I just decided to dig up and find a couple pictures that sort of contrast each other. Because I have that testimony, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. Okay. Now, if you've heard my testimony a little bit, at age 26, I had a profound... I would call it spiritual awakening, even though I professed Christ ever since I was five. At age 26, something took place. And I had an experience of God's mercy and God's power in my life that woke me from my slumber, from my sin, and set my eyes on Jesus Christ. Now, before that, I was chasing all kinds of things and living for all kinds of pleasures. And only a year before that, only weeks before that, only months before that, I was kind of a sports addict. I um, was really passionate about Michigan football and stuff that just makes no sense. It's nonsense, but I was really passionate about it. And then Jesus was made clear and obvious in my mind. And now I'm standing here today as a pastor. And the only difference is that Jesus was made clear and obvious in my mind at age 26 that not only did he exist, but he's the Son of God, he's my Savior, and he came to die for my sins. And at age 26, everything changed for me because Jesus was made clear and obvious. And I gave up all my former passions and I gave them all to Jesus. And I'm still working through that process, but that was the moment in my life that I said, he deserves everything. Do you have that moment? Do you have that experience in your life where Jesus was made clear and obvious? Well, there were four examples, and we need to race through these a little bit today. But four things that I found, and I'm sure there's more than this, about how Jesus manifested himself to the world. When he was upon the earth, Jesus manifested himself, made himself clear and obvious to those who were witnessing him. Number one is his teachings. If you remember, Jesus did a lot of teachings. And right here is supposed to be a picture of the Sermon on the Mount, of him teaching to five, perhaps 15,000 people in one setting. Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And you remember that? Jesus is teaching. He's teaching about the law. He's teaching about the Beatitudes. He's teaching about how to be a Christian and how to follow him. But if you remember what happened at the end of Matthew chapter 7. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, when he had finished teaching, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as, as them as one who had authority and not like their scribes. And I want you to picture that scene, Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and these people in their own minds and their own estimation thinking to themselves, it's almost like he was there. It's almost like he's been in heaven. It's almost like he knows the mind of God. This is not teaching that we're accustomed to. We're used to the scribes telling us the law and telling us things about the religion, but Jesus is speaking on a whole nother plane, a whole nother level, and they're astonished. And why are they astonished? Because Jesus is making himself manifest to them. Clear and obvious that not only am I a moral guy, a religious leader, I'm the son of God that's come down from heaven. And I do have the authority of God. He made himself clear and obvious to his listeners. And if you read the Bible, which is something we really encourage, if you read the teachings of Jesus, the same thing is made clear to you. He has authority. He is the Son of God. No one could know these things. No one could unlock these things. No one could reveal these things unless he knew, unless he was there, unless he too was an eyewitness to the creation of the world, unless he was an eyewitness to heaven itself, unless he is an eyewitness to God the Father. Jesus himself also did not come with hearsay, did he? He come with eyewitness testimony that I was there. I was there when the world was created. I created the world. I was there in heaven with God the Father. I have come down to bear witness about God and his word. I'm an eyewitness. And when people heard him teach, they were astonished and they recognized that he had authority from God. So when Jesus spoke his teachings, 
made it obvious to those who were listening that Jesus is the Son of God. The second thing Jesus did is miracles. And if you read through the Gospels at all, you will see Jesus do these remarkable things right there before the people. And I don't know if you can read that as well, but here's a few examples of what Jesus did. He fed thousands of people with a small boy's lunch. You remember that. Uh, he cast out evil spirits in a moment. An evil spirit was, was possessing someone, and Jesus, in a moment, cast them out. He healed the blind, the deaf, the sick, the lame, the infirmed. In a moment, people who had lifelong illnesses, Jesus cured them in an instant. He turned water into wine. He controlled the elements of nature. He allowed Peter and his crew to catch a surprisingly large amount of fish. If you remember that scene, they had caught fish. They had caught no fish all night, and Jesus said, drop your net into the other side of the boat, and then suddenly the nets were breaking with fish. And Jesus raised people from the dead. And when Jesus was doing these miracles before these people's eyes, he was manifesting himself to them, saying, not only am I here to teach you, I'm here to reveal to you that I have the power and the authority of God, because who else can walk on water? Who else can have sight return to them? Who else can have their legs return to them? Who else can catch a large amount of fish in a moment? Who else can change water into wine? Who else can, can raise Lazarus from the dead? Who else can take a small boy's lunch and feed five to 10, 15,000 people? Jesus' miracles was, was making himself manifest. Now in John chapter 10, John, John's gospel in chapter 10, listen to this phrase. Jesus said in verse 37 and 38, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, did you ever hear Jesus say this? Then don't believe in me. <laughs> Jesus once told people to not believe in him if I'm not doing the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. If you don't listen to my teachings and it's not clear and obvious in your mind that I come down from heaven, watch my works. Watch what I'm able to do. Witness it with your own eyes and ask the question, who else can do that? Because Jesus' works validated his ministry, validated his teachings. And do you know the same thing should happen for Christians? Did you know that? Our testimony of, of how we got saved is strong on its own. But when it's validated by works of love, works of godliness, works of holiness, it brings that testimony to a whole nother level. Jesus said, listen, if I come down and just say that I'm the son of God, that shouldn't be enough for you. But if I validate it with works of miracles, then you will understand that I am who I say that I am. And I am the son of God. So his teachings made it obvious, his miracles made it obvious as well, that he is the Son of God. Let's keep moving. Now we have a mountain near us, a really big mountain. In fact, we have a few. What's the second biggest mountain in New Hampshire? Adams. The one everyone talks about, unfortunately, to Adams, is Mount Washington, because Mount Washington is the tallest mountain in New Hampshire. This is the one that I love seeing the most. And we have a mountain right in our backyard, basically. But there was a mountain in Scripture that, again, I told you, Peter, Peter, James, and John were sometimes privy to things the other disciples weren't. And Jesus one time took those three disciples up on a mountain. And he did something remarkable before their eyes. Now let's read this account in Matthew 17, verses 1 to 2. This is the account of the transfiguration, if you know what that is. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, the one writing 1 John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain. They believe the mountain is the Mount Tabor. I believe that's said. I'm not sure if that's absolutely 100% true. But that's where they believe the Mount of Transfiguration took place. Took them on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Jesus brought these three guys up to a mountain. And he gave them a peek behind the curtain of his glory. In a moment, he transfigured right before their eyes, showed him his glory, showed him his brilliance, showed him his authority, and these guys just got to sit there and, and behold this right there on the mountain. And can you imagine what that must have been like to see Jesus transfigure? And then not only does that happen, but listen what happens after that. In verse 5, it says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This 
is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> now, what would your response be if you saw that and heard that? You see Jesus transfigured. He's glowing before your eyes. You've never seen this before in your life. And then a voice, a booming loud voice comes from a cloud and says, listen to Jesus Christ, my beloved son. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. I think that's a very honest and fitting response to seeing and hearing that. But what was happening before these three disciples' eyes and ears? Jesus was manifested before them. They saw in a moment the transfiguration of Jesus, and, and they had heard amazing things out of Jesus' mouth. They had seen him do miracles, several miracles before their eyes, but now they get to take a peek at his glory. And they get to hear the Father, God the Father, say, listen to him. In, clay, in case it's not clear to you yet, disciples, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Give every attention to him. Pay attention to Jesus because he's my son. I sent him. He's down from heaven to do my will. Give all of your attention to Jesus Christ. And John is an eyewitness of not only his teachings, not only his miracles, but also the transfiguration. And if it wasn't by that point, it was obvious that Jesus was the Son of God. Now John continues and says the life, Jesus, was made manifest. We talked about that. And we have seen it, again, eyewitness, and testify to it and proclaim to you, Christians, child of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's what he's writing about. That's why he's writing to these people so that he can say to them, I am a firsthand eyewitness of the deity of the Son of God. And I need you to understand that so that what I say to you is not from my testimony, not from my words, not my opinion, but what I'm going to pen in 1 John is from the very mouth of God. It's from Jesus Christ himself because I'm penning what he told me to pen. I'm writing down the things that he said verbatim so that you know that this came directly from God. But let's talk about that eternal life thing because that's another bold statement Jesus made. He said again, we looked at this last week, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How can anyone offer you eternal life? I'm sure you've gotten really great presents over the course of your life. But nothing compares to that. Nothing. No present you've ever received can hold a candle to someone saying, I will grant you eternal life. But Jesus did. Jesus said, I will give you the present of all presents. I will give you eternal life if you simply believe in who I am. Believe in what I came to do. In John 17, we're finding all of these things out of the mouth of John. In John chapter 17, the Gospel of John... Jesus says this, and this is eternal life. Because you've heard a lot of different takes on what heaven's going to be like, right? What is heaven? What is eternal life? What's it going to look like? What are we going to experience? How can it be eternal? How can it be that great for that long and we don't get bored? How, how can eternal life be that great? What is eternal life? Well, he says this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If that is true, and it is true because it came out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ, then eternal life has already begun for you and for me. Because eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ, the one whom God sent. If eternal life is that, then you and I have already begun this journey of having that life within us. And Jesus came not only to teach, not only to reveal his power, not only to transfigure before three men, but to grant every single follower of his the same gift, eternal life. Do you have this life? Because this is why we do this. You need to understand. We do not do this just to fill time or to be religious and to feel good about ourselves. We do this because eternal life is offered from our God to all of humanity. Do you have that eternal life? Because it'll change your life. It'll change every part of your life once you have it. Everything will be different. Everything will be new. I found this quote from Oswald Chambers. Perhaps many of you have heard of him before. He said this, he said, eternal life is not a gift from God. Eternal life is the gift of God. 
And I think that's very profound, and I think that really represents what Jesus has said. Eternal life is not when you leave this earth and, and step in heaven for the first time, because heaven is only heaven because who is there? Jesus is there. Wherever Jesus is, that's where heaven is. And so John was basically saying when, when he spent time with Jesus Christ, eternal life had already begun. When you spend time here at church in your personal study with Jesus, when you gather with his people, when you pray before him, you are experiencing eternal life. Now, yes, on the other side, it's going to be better. We understand that. There won't be any darkness. There won't be any enemy. There won't be any pain or suffering. There won't be any time limits. But if you know God and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you have eternal life already. Now, Jesus had a lot of naysayers. As most ministers understand, that happens. When you're trying to speak about such profound things, someone will come in and discredit you. And, and so Jesus had a lot of interactions with these Pharisees, these Jews who discredited his ministry, or tried to at least. And Jesus said to these men in John chapter 5, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And you're not entirely wrong, but you have need to understand one very big qualifier. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Eternal life is found in here. We know that. We just, we just told you. Eternal life is found in the very pages of your Bible. But it's only because Jesus is also there. Because Jesus is eternal life. And he said to these people, you're, not, you're searching in the wrong places. You're searching in the words instead of the object of those words. The object of the words are the very important thing. The one that you will find eternal life is from me. And if you would have seen me, you would have understood and been manifested today that clearly I am the Son of God and I've come to give you life. And last week we talked about this when Mary and Martha um, met Jesus on the road when Jesus was coming to heal their brother Mary said this statement, I know that my brother will rise again on the last day. And Jesus' response to Martha was this, I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. It's not a day. It's not a season. It's me. It's me. I am the resurrection and the life. As long as you have me, you have everything you need. And she was able to see that one more time when Lazarus was risen from the dead, Jesus was once again made manifest to Martha, to Mary, and to everyone who witnessed it, that he is eternal life. He is the very person of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus rose from the grave and allowed people to touch his hands and see the scars and the nail marks, guess what happened? Jesus was made manifest. Clear and obvious that if the Son of God can rise from the dead, he's not a mere man. He has to be God. He must be deity. He must be the Son of God. So Jesus was made manifest by his teachings, by his miracles, by the transfiguration, and by the resurrection. If you need proof, and that's something you, God would encourage to you to have, because Christianity is not a blind faith. You should have validation that Jesus is the Son of God and that you should give your entire life to this Jesus. And if, all you, if you want that proof, go find it. Listen to his teachings. Read about his miracles. Read about the transfiguration. Read about the resurrection. And one thing will be made very crystal clear before your eyes. Jesus is obviously the Son of God. And now there's a point to that because John's going to tell us something. He says, that which we have seen, same subject, which we have seen with first-hand eyewitness, we proclaim also to you so that you, Christian, may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to imagine this, too. I want you to play out another hypothetical scenario, okay? You were able to have lunch with John, or I was able to have lunch with John. Wouldn't that be amazing? I've had a lot of great lunches with a lot of great people, but what if I could take out the Apostle John and just sit before him and just say, John, just talk. Just talk. I'm just going to listen. I'm going to zip it. You just speak. Speak about what you saw. Speak about what it was like. Just tell me everything. Everything that you saw. Wouldn't that be amazing to have fellowship with John the Apostle? I think it would be remarkable. I can't imagine a better time spent. Or can I? Because John would say something is even more profound than that. Now, the word fellowship means a group of people that join together for a common purpose or interest. 
It can also mean a feeling of friendship that people have when they are talking or doing something together and sharing their experiences. That's what fellowship is. Now, fellowship can happen on a couple of different levels, right? Fellowship can happen with something hard. And even though it's hard, you can enjoy some fellowship together that you're doing something hard together. And if you read any of those testimonials of those who are in war and in the trenches, they share about this fellowship they had with their brothers. But you can also have fellowship with something fun, something joyful, something easy. And both will be fellowship. Maybe one is more profound, but they're both fellowship. Well, John is saying something really remarkable here today, and this is how we're going to close today. The joy of fellowship. He's saying, listen, you have to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. So God, the Father, and Jesus had fellowship. In fact, they had perfect fellowship. Whatever God thought, Jesus thought. Whatever God said, Jesus heard. They had perfect fellowship because their Father, their Son, they're holy. They were in heaven together. They have perfect fellowship. And then Jesus did something astonishing. Jesus came to this earth. And guess what he had with the disciples? Fellowship. With the disciples. The disciples were able to sit in the room with God. Have a meeting with God. Walk around with God and watch God perform miracles. Watch God speak about the heavenly things. Be with God for three years of their life. And the disciples had this rich, deep fellowship with Jesus. And they were fellowshipping with God. And now John is writing in 1 John, basically saying this, that he and the disciples, those who witnessed Jesus Christ, want to have fellowship with us. So what's he trying to include us in? He's trying to include us in fellowship with who? With God. Listen, if you understand these things, if you can understand what I'm saying and understand that these words came from God, you will not just sit down with John for a lunch, for a meeting. Who will you sit down with? God himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You will sit in the very room of God every time you read these words. Every time you hear them preach, you're not listening to a mere man. You're listening to the very words and mouth of God. And you're fellowshipping with someone more rich, more deep than anyone you could ever imagine. And John's saying, you're invited. Come, fellowship with me. Fellowship with us. I'm an eyewitness. Jesus is an eyewitness. And when you fellowship with us, you fellowship with God himself. In Hebrews 4, 15... The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Do you notice the fellowship? Jesus can say to you when you're tempted, when you're struggling with weaknesses, I too know what you're dealing with. I was there. I've been there. Every temptation you faced, I faced. Every weakness you had, I went through. But I did it without sin. Jesus is in the trenches with us. All these hard things that Christians are supposed to do, all these battles we face with the enemy, all these struggles we have just trying to get up this great mountain of Christ's likeness, Jesus says, listen, I went up that mountain first. And every weakness you faced, I faced. Every temptation you faced, I faced. But guess what I did? I conquered the mountain. I went up, I conquered the mountain, I died, I rose again, I did God's will every moment of my life, and I'm here to help you, and I'm here to let you know that you too can have fellowship with me. Don't you love that you have a personal Savior? Don't you love that it's not just words? Don't you love that it's not just someone you study? Don't you love that he says, I'm with you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. If I call you to go somewhere hard, I'm going with you. I'm going to be right next to you. You're not going to do this alone. Even when I preach, I'm not standing here alone. I'm standing here with the Lord Jesus Christ next to me. I'm fellowshipping with him right now. And that's a powerful thing to understand. And here's what John says as he closes this part of the portion of Scripture. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. If you understand how valuable this fellowship is, if you understand how much Jesus was manifested to the world and the fact that we can be invited into a relationship with him, into fellowship with him, you will understand that this is all about our joy. One of the, the first lie the devil ever told to humanity was in the Garden of Eden. And he tried to convince Eve that God was stealing joy from her. 
that perhaps the one fruit that you can't eat is the best fruit of all the fruit, Eve. So take this fruit, eat it, and enjoy all the joy that God is robbing from you. And it was a lie. Because as soon as she bit into that fruit, she knew what death was like. She knew what separation was like. Was God stealing joy from Eve, from Adam? No. On the contrary, he was trying to give him joy. And so he says, I invite you into this fellowship with me, with John, with God himself, so that your joy can be complete. Don't you love that about your God, that he's concerned about your joy? Not just your obedience. Your obedience is about your joy. He's concerned that your joy is complete, full, overflowing, and eternal. Your God is concerned about your joy. And I love knowing that about my God. That it's not just, Todd, do what's right and have no fun for the rest of your life. That's not what God is concerned about. He's concerned that I'm happy and my happiness lingers forever and ever and ever. That's your God. That you may have fellowship with us and that your joy may be complete. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, listen, I want you to follow my example. Follow me. Follow your leaders. Follow my example. I am the Apostle Paul. Follow me and listen to me. Why? Because I follow the example of Christ. Where I'm taking you is into the fellowship of Jesus himself. So follow me. And I've echoed these same words, and so did Pastor Mark. Follow your leaders. Why? Not because we're the end all and be all. No, because we're bringing you into the fellowship of the Father and Jesus Christ himself. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And you will experience the riches and the joy of fellowship. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite preacher of all time, said you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Isn't that true? You will start to experience this full, complete joy when you realize that you don't have it. And as soon as you realize you don't have it, you empty yourself. You remove all that stuff. You let go of all that stuff that you're clinging on to, sports and friends and pleasures of this world and hobbies, all these relationships that I have that bring me joy. And then you realize, no, 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 that's not the joy giver. And then Jesus fills you up. When you empty yourself, he fills you up. He doesn't bring you back to where you were. He brings you back to a level that you couldn't even imagine that you could experience. And we all know what this is like, right? Go get a little sample of ice cream. My kids love getting samples. Those poor ice cream workers, man. We bring seven, eight kids into that place. Whew. A lot of samples, a lot of time. But they get to taste a sample. And this world can give you samples. Did you know that? This world can give you samples of joy. And you can experience joy for a moment, for a time, a sampling of it. And it can taste really rich and great. But what happens with the world's joy? It goes away very quickly. Versus the Lord's joy, he's saying, listen, when I have joy for you, it's complete, it's full, it's never ending, it's always lasting. And that's the problem here. That's what Jesus is trying to draw us into. I don't want you to have the worldly things. Some of them are bad, some of them will actually hurt you, but in all honesty, none of them can satisfy you, even the good ones. If they're earthly only, and you have joy from them, it's still not enough because one day you'll lose them. And I don't want you to experience loss. On the contrary, I want you to experience gain. So what I really want for you, Christ follower, is fellowship. I want you to experience the same things that I went through, the same things that I asked you to do, because when you experience those things and you reach the top of the mountain and you look over the view, you will have joy that will never, ever fade, never, ever spoil for the rest of eternity. And that's what your God is offering to you today. In order to do that, we have to empty ourselves Take it out to the curb. Release all those things that we're clinging on to that are so joy-giving in our minds, but they're samples only. Let go of them so that we can have the gift of eternal life. Because that's what Jesus came to offer us. Not just life, but abundant life. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what this community and this world needs? Not just life, more life, longer-lasting life, another five, ten years. No. They need eternal, abundant life, and it only comes from Jesus Christ. So John says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. But notice this word here. Our joy. Not just your joy. But remember, this is a fellowship. I'm writing these things so that our joy can be complete. And I told you, I encourage you to read 1 John 
every single week, and you'll see some of these amazing themes pop up of what God is inviting us into, this eternal, rich, deep fellowship. And here's our application as we close. And it's very simple and straightforward because so is the book of 1 John. Has Jesus been made manifested to you? Has he? I can't assume that. We're not going to assume that. Have you experienced a time where you said and you saw and you witnessed Jesus Christ is obviously the Son of God? He obviously came to this earth to save me from my sins, and I want to be where he is. I want those sins forgiven. I want those sins cleansed. I don't want to live that way anymore because, Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. And if so, you remember that time when it went from hearsay only to, wow, those Christians have something great, too. That moment in time when Jesus was made clear and obvious to you and you said, he's my Savior. He's not just the Savior. He's my Savior. Has that happened for you? Number two, have you experienced the joy of fellowshipping with Jesus? Because it's joy. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to be doing this here today. If there wasn't more joy in doing this than there was in the stuff I used to do. That's how my mind works. It's logical. It's reasoning. It's, it's about investment. I would not be giving up the greater joy for the lesser joy. No one does that. I have given up the lesser joy for the greater joy. Why? Because there's more joy. More rich, deep joy in fellowshipping with Jesus than there is in anything else in the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when David says, my cup runneth over what he meant that I, I have this small cup that I thought was so big, so vast that nothing could ever fill it up and then Jesus dumped himself in it and now it's bubbling over. It's overflowing with the joy that I never thought could be so rich. Number three, if that is true, if he's been manifested to you, if you've experienced the joy of fellowshipping with Jesus, are you ready and willing to find your truest life in him? Because you will. I don't need to convince you. All I need to do is set Jesus before you. And if he's manifested and you receive that joy, that fellowship, and you understand that only Jesus can offer you eternal life, you will give your life to him. You'll hand the keys over. And say, Jesus, from now on, you take over. Now, remember, I told you the series title of our first John study is For His Glory and for Our Benefit. In every lesson, we're going to find something that does both. Something that gives God glory and something that gives us benefit. And notice at the end in verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Yes, our joy. But who else? The disciples. By bringing, ushering more into the kingdom of God. Who else? Jesus. Who else? God himself. I'm writing these things to you so that we can all have fellowship together for the rest of eternity. And by doing so, all of our joys will be complete. It's for his glory and it's for our benefit when he says, come to the table and experience these things with me. My joy will be richer. Your joy will be richer. All of our joys will be more complete when you experience this rich fellowship. Looks a little weird, right? Because we're in the same room here. I had Haddon take that picture on Wednesday because I was, I, sometimes on Wednesday, I, I just sit and, and watch, not creepily, but I just, I just watch the fellowship taking place and I just, I just get joy. It's, it's one of those things that should be on my list of small things that bring me joy when the church is fellowshipping together. But guess what you're also doing when you fellowship together? And I don't mean the tech booth, although we love you guys too. But guess who, guess who you're fellowshipping with when you fellowship together? You're also fellowshipping with God. Who's in this room right now? The Lord is. By his Holy Spirit. So when we fellowship together, we're also fellowshipping with him. And this is all so that our joy can be complete. And I love that about 1 John, that he invites us into this rich, deep fellowship. Because he's going to say some things that it might be a little hard to hear in 1 John. But you have to remember, it's about confidence that we know we have eternal life. He said that in 1 John 5. And in 1 John 1, 4, it's so that our joy can be complete. And if you believe that, then anything God says to you is good. Everything. Everything God says to you is for your benefit and for his glory. Every single thing God invites you into is for your benefit. And I hope you believe that. So we're going to experience some fellowship together right after this sermon. And that's kind of on purpose because we're looking for the joy of fellowship. I hope that's something you are experiencing already. But if you're not, you're going to taste a little bit of that today as we fellowship together.
but I hope even more profound than fellowship together, we're going to experience fellowship with God, and we're going to experience it forevermore. Would you bow in prayer with me? Father and God, we are so thankful for this fellowship that you've invited us into. We don't deserve it because we were sinners. We had broken your law, but Father, you are so gracious and merciful to want your creation back with you, to be in this rich, deep fellowship with you forevermore, and we're so thankful for this book that has invited us in this door of rich, deep fellowship. Father, help us understand the joy that's from this fellowship cannot be offered to us from anywhere in the world. We can't find it. It'll be shallow, it'll be sinful, it'll be short-lasting, it won't satisfy us. But if we understand the joy of Jesus Christ, we will be invited into something that will complete our joy forevermore and complete your joy, Father. And I believe that's the case today. Fathers, we gather together, we thank you for the food we're about to enjoy, the fellowship we're about to have, and we give all credit and glory to Jesus Christ for what's happening in this church, and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.